Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we've had to come and to worship you this morning already. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to bring to you our tithes and our offerings. And we pray, Father, that you will take and multiply these things that have been given to you for the sake of your kingdom. Father, now as we come to your word, we pray, Father, that you will simply multiply that within our lives as well. Father, your word is a wonderful thing. It's living and it's active like a two-edged sword. So, Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us this day, Father, that we may be changed. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Good morning. You know, back in 1921, there was a couple who lived in Sweden. Their name was David and Sevilla Flood. They felt called by God to leave their home in Sweden and go to Africa to become missionaries there. And so that's what they did. They left their home. They went to what was then known as the Belgian Congo, which is present-day Zaire. They went to a mission station there, and they met another couple by the name of the Ericsons. And together they ministered to some of the, uh, the African churches that were there in that area. But then, after being there in Zaire and Belgian Congo a couple of years, they felt that God was calling them to leave that mission station where there were lots of missionaries and to go to a very remote village that was some distance away. So David and Sevilla Flood and the Ericsons left the mission station and they went. When they arrived at this little village, the chief of the village met them and said, no, 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 you cannot come and live in our village. We know that you are bringing foreign ideas and foreign gods with you. You must go and you must live somewhere else. And so they moved a couple of miles away in a very, very desolate place, close to this village, but really much kind of in the jungle. And the chief would not allow any of the people from the village to have any contact with these white people. There was only one young boy who was eight years old. And they said to that young boy, you may go and you may sell eggs and chickens to the foreigners, but that's the only people that can have contact with them. And that really frustrated these two couples, the Floods and the Ericsons, because they had really little opportunity to share with others. But Sevilla Flood said, you know what? If all I have is the opportunity to share Christ with this one young African boy, then that's what I'm going to do. And she shared her faith with this young boy, and this young boy eventually became a Christian. But life was very, very difficult for them. One by one, they started contracting malaria. And pretty soon the Ericsons had said, you know what, we're sick, we've had enough, we're going back to the mission statement, station. And they left. And that left only David and Sevilla Flood. And Sevilla became pregnant. And there in that very remote, desolate place, she ended up giving birth to a little girl who they named Ana. But she lasted only about six days because already fatigued through malaria, she ended up dying. And something inside David Flood just snapped. He could not understand why God had called them from their home to bring them to Africa and then for all this tragedy to happen. He took the baby back to the mission station and he gave the baby to the Ericsons and said, you look after this baby. I don't want this baby. What is a baby good for me? God has destroyed my life. He's killed my wife. I'm leaving. And with that, he got on a boat and he left not only Africa, he also left his faith. He ended up just leaving the church altogether. Now you hear a story like that, and it makes you ask yourself the question, where was God in the midst of that? 
I mean, here's a young couple. They wanted to do something for Jesus. They leave their home, their comfortable life in Sweden. They move to Africa. And yet, one after another thing happens. They're not able to share their faith. Sevilla ends up dying. A baby is born. The baby's given to someone else. A man leaves his faith altogether. Where was God in the midst of that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? God, where are you in the midst of my suffering? Have you ever gone through something in life and you said, God, why did you let that happen to me? God, why? Why did that have to happen? God, where were you when my husband or my wife died or my child? God, where were you in the middle of this sickness when I was diagnosed with cancer? God, where were you when this rape, when this abuse happened? God, why did you allow that to happen? God, where were you when I was suffering? I want us to look at one passage of Scripture this morning. Probably one of the greatest passages of Scripture in all the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It's on the screen. I would encourage you to make sure you bring your Bibles with you. Can I also say that those of you who came in early will have noticed that the new church website was up on the screen. There's a lot of good resources on that new website. One of the things we'd like to do is to make sure that there is a written outline of every message the week before it's preached so that during the week you can print out that message and you can actually bring it with you because I know that some of you have a hard time following me. So if you just print that message out and bring it, those are like your sermon notes. You can use that to follow along with me to make sure that you don't miss any of what I'm trying to say. Romans chapter 8 verse 28, it says this, We know... That in all things work together for good to those who love God, those are call, who are called according to his purposes. We know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Can I say that that is a promise of God for each one of us this morning? And just like a, all the promises of God, there are five things about the promises of God. They're like five fingers on a hand. It's like the hand of God is reaching out to hold our hand in times of trial. Five things about the promises of God this morning. Number one, the promises of God are certain. They are certain. This passage says, for we think, no. For we believe, no. For we know, for we know, for we are certain, for we trust 100% in the promises of God. You know, there are many things in this life that I do not know. I do not know if I am financially secure. I am not sure. I do not know when or how I will die. I do not know if my children will outlive me. There are a lot of things in life that I do not know. And you know what? For a lot of people, that scares them. Not knowing. 
There are so many things in life that are totally beyond my control. But there is one thing in life that I do know, that even though there are things beyond my control, there is nothing in life that is beyond God's control. That our God is sovereign. I know that for a fact. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through Him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Do you understand what you say when you say Amen? What the word Amen means? It's kind of a funny word. It is a word that is a universal word. Every language speaks the same word. Amen. You go to a church in China, they'll pray in Chinese. Amen. Right? It's, it's a universal word. The word Amen actually comes from the Hebrew. You see, back in the Jewish church, back in the, even before the days of Jesus, when a, a passage of Scripture was read in the synagogue, the people, after the passage of Scripture had been read, would say Amen, which comes from the Hebrew word trust. In other words, it means, I trust that. So you read a passage of scripture, the people say, yes, we trust that. We confirm that. We believe that. We stake our lives upon that. That is what you're saying when you say amen. You're saying, I trust it. I believe it. I stake my life upon it. When I was a kid, we had a pond that was close to our house. And I remember the first year that I went over that pond during the winter time. I, I, I wanted to go ice skating on that pond, but I didn't know if it was safe. I thought, you know, maybe I'll go out on the ice and I'll fall through. So I remember the first time I went to this pond. I went to the pond and, and the first thing I did was not wanting to walk out on the ice. I just kind of reached out my toe and touched the ice quickly. And, and, then, I, and then I touched it again and, 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 and nothing happened. And, and, and so I, I thought, I'll put my weight on it just a little bit. And so I just kind of put my foot out, and I went like this. And then pretty soon I was out tiptoeing on the ice, staying close to the shore, just tiptoeing on the ice, listening for whether or not it would break. And then after a while, it was, oh, well, this is all right. And I started walking on the ice, and after that I started jumping up and down on the ice, and then I was driving my car out on the ice, and you know. But I learned something. I had learned by then that the ice was safe, that the ice was okay. At first, I so tenderly put my weight upon it, but after a while of walking on the ice, I realized, you know what? The ice is trustworthy. I learned it by experience. And trust is an interesting thing. You can only learn trust by experience, right? Trust requires experience. And the same is true of the promises of God. We trust in the promises of God because in our lives, God has repeatedly shown himself to be trustworthy. Has God met your needs in the past? Has God shown up in the past? Well, the same God that has met your needs in the past will meet your needs in the future. That's the promise. That the more we get to know about God, the more we understand that He is faithful and that He is true and that His words can be trusted. I don't know if anybody went and saw the, the second uh, in the series, the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. In the 
Prince Caspian, there's a scene where Lucy meets Aslan the lion. And this is like, she hasn't been in in Narnia for a long time, and, and she sees Aslan again. But this time, the second time she sees Aslan, she says, Oh, Aslan, you're much bigger now. And Aslan says this very important thing. He says, I'm bigger now because you're older, Lucy. In fact, the older you get, the bigger I will become. And that is true of our experience of God. That the more we walk with Him, the more we trust in Him, the more dependable and faithful and bigger we see God to be. For we know the promises of God, number one, are certain. But they're not simply certain, number one. Number two, the promises of God are also complete. What do we know? We know that all things, all things, Does that say some things? Does it say many things? Does it say mostly everything? No, it doesn't. It says all things. That means God in all things works together for our good. You see, in our lives, we can identify good things, but we also want to identify not so good things, right? There are times in our lives when we look and we say, oh yeah, God, I understand how you're using that situation in my life. Oh God, yeah, I understand how you're using that situation in my life. But God, this situation, no, I don't understand that. God, why would you allow that to happen? God, that's just tragic. God, that's just awful. There's no way that you could redeem that situation. But the promise of God is that all things work together for good. Proverbs 16.4 says that the Lord has prepared everything for His purpose, even the wicked, for the day of disaster. God can use anything in your life. He can redeem it. There can be a purpose behind it. Remember the character Job? Job was a guy who had everything in life. He was happy. He was successful. But then in Job 1.9, Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hand and his possessions are spread out in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord said to Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. And so Satan went out from the Lord's presence. He allowed Satan, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans. He allowed a powerful wind. He allowed a storm to remove everything from Job. Job lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his possessions. God even allowed later Satan to come and touch his physical body. So he was covered with painful sores. Job lost everything. So what was the result? Well, we read at the end of Job what the result was. In Job 42.5, these are the words of Job. He says, I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. You know, when I was rich, when I had all these things, I had heard rumors about you, God. I knew about you. But now that I have gone through this fire, now that I have gone through this storm, now, God, I know you. Job's relationship had gone to being a personal relationship through the trials. That God even allowed the bad stuff to happen so that Job could find him. 
The promises of God are certain. The promises of God are complete. Number three, the promises of God are collective. They're collective. It says here that all things, we know, all things work together. Work together. What does that mean? Now listen to me. You have to understand this. This is important. This passage does not say all things are good. It doesn't say that. Because you know what? A lot of the stuff that happens to us in life isn't good. A lot of the stuff that happened to Job wasn't good. It wasn't good. It was evil. It was demonic. It was terrible. It was sinful. This passage doesn't say that the stuff that we go through in life is always going to be good. But what it says is that all things work together. All things work together. Taken individually, they're not any good. But when you see the bigger plan, when you see the larger scheme, then you begin to understand. Joseph had a lot of terrible things happen to him. He was sold into slavery. He was put in prison. And yet at the end of his life, he was able to say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph understood that the things that had happened to him in life were bad things, and yet collectively God brought all those things together and used them for something good. How many of you here have ever made a cake? You know, you make a cake. Yeah, of course. Think about what goes into a cake for a minute. You have flour. You ever tasted flour by itself? Gross. Raw eggs. Oh yeah, that's yummy. Baking soda. Yuck. Salt. You know, if, if you like that kind of thing. Sugar, okay. Most of the stuff that you put into a cake is pretty nasty by itself. And yet when you take all those things together and you mix it all up, and you put it in an oven, and you bake it under heat, then suddenly, what comes out? This wonderful, delicious thing. You see, individually in our lives, sometimes we just taste the flour, and we say, God, what are you doing in my life? We taste the baking soda. Ooh, yuck, God, why are you allowing me to go through this in my life? And God says, it's okay, it's okay. All things are working together. All things are coming together. You're seeing individually now just a small piece of the larger puzzle. But the promise is that someday we're going to see our lives through God's eyes. We're going to taste our lives through the furnace, the oven of affliction. And we will understand that it is good. Number four. God's promises are constructive. For we know that all things work together for good. That's a promise. The promise of God is that in the end, it's going to be okay. In the end, it's going to work out all right. In the end, it will be good. I don't care what you're going through now in your life. I don't care how bad the situation, how terrible the hell that you may be going through right now in your life. And I don't use that word lightly. I know that in the end, it will turn out for good. 
I know you've heard the story before of the shipwrecked man. Finds himself on a desert island. He says, the first thing I got to do is build myself a hut to get out of the rain. And so he works and he works and he works. And over the weeks and the months, he's finally able to put up this very crude house for himself. And he starts feeling pretty good about what he's done. He says, man, I worked really, really hard and I was able to build this very comfortable place to live. But then he's out gathering wood and his hut burns to the ground. And he falls to his knees and he cries out to God. He says, God, why did you allow it to happen? This thing I'd worked on, this thing I'd slaved over, this thing I, I built, why did you allow it to burn? And then suddenly he looks over his shoulder and there's a ship pulling into the little harbor. And he's rescued. And he says to the people, how did you know I was here? They said, oh, we saw your signal fire. <laughs> you see, the thing that he thought was a disaster was actually his salvation. The problem is, is that so often we don't see our lives through God's eyes. We see our lives through our eyes. We have a limited perspective. All we see are the trees. God sees the forest. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you were trying to help somebody? But they didn't see it like that. Many years ago, Naomi and I were in Cape Town, South Africa, on the ship, the Dulos. The Dulos had to go into a dry dock. Every now and then, big ocean ships have to go in and the water is taken out and the ships sit on these big wooden blocks and they come and they scrape down all the barnacles and they repaint the hull. Well, that's what the Dulos was. It was in this dry dock. There was a Russian fishing trawler in front of us and they let all the water out. But because it was South Africa, in South Africa they have all these harbor seals. You know, these great big animals. And I'm not talking about cute little white seal pups. I'm talking about these great big 900 pound harbor seals with razor sharp teeth. And one of these monster male seals had gotten caught inside the dry dock. And when the water went down, this seal was down on the bottom flapping around. And actually, those seals can move pretty good. Sea lions. And I got this bright idea one day. I said, you know what? They're going to start sandblasting the side of the ship tomorrow. They're going to be down there with all this heavy equipment. That poor seal isn't going to survive. That seal is going to die. Somebody should go down and catch that seal and take that seal and put it back in the water. And everybody just kind of looked at me and went, yeah, right. <laughs> You don't understand. This is a 900-pound sea lion. Vicious. And so I got the bright idea, you know what? I'm going to do it. And so I got this big net. And I went down under the ship. You have to understand, it was pitch black under the ship. Thousands of, of tons of metal above my head supported on these pieces of wood. And I'm down there with a flashlight in my mouth and this big net. And all I can hear is that big sea lion going, And I was scared to death. I thought to myself, I'm going to die down here. This sea lion is going to kill me and eat me for breakfast. What am I doing down here? And, and I, I was down there in the dark and, 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 and suddenly the seal stopped going, 
And I'm thinking, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And I come around a corner and I come face to face with this thing. It rears up on its back. It was as tall as me. Massive animal. Opens its mouth. And I said, yikes! I dropped the net. I ran. I ran for my life. And this seal was just as fast as I was. It came roaring out after me. It said, this, I don't, you know, this guy is trying to hurt me. I'm going to kill it. And, and, and when, as I came running out from underneath the ship, the Russian trawler guys had all been up there laughing at me, thinking, what is this crazy person doing? They had all come down with all their fishing nets, and as the seal came running out after me, they threw the nets on it, and they caught it. And it took about 20 of us to pick this thing up, to carry it up the stairs, and to release it back into the water. And it was so, so cool watching that sea lion swim away. But I thought to myself, if only I could become a sea lion, if only I could speak seal, if only I could go under there and I could say to that poor thing, you know what, I don't mean to harm you. I don't want to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. If you would just get into this net and allow us to carry you up the stairs, that the end result is going to be good. But you know what, the sea lion didn't understand it. It was just a stupid animal, just like us. Because so often God wants to help us. And you know, we find ourselves in a bad spot. We find ourselves in the dark. We find ourselves in a dangerous position in life. And God tries to send people our way to get us out. But we don't see things from our perspective. From His perspective. Johnny Erickson Tata once wrote this. Every sorrow we taste will one day prove to be the best possible thing that could have happened. We will thank God endlessly in heaven for the trials He sent to us here. This is not Disneyland. It is the truth. This is from a woman who has spent more than 30 years of her life in a wheelchair. She has to have someone help her to go to the bathroom and to just brush her hair every morning of her life. The Apostle Paul went through more pain and suffering than most of us will ever go through in a dozen lifetimes. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was homeless. He went through such pain that we will never know. And you know what Paul wrote? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For we see what is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. Paul also said this. He said, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, he's saying this. I know you may be going through a tough time in your life right now. But in the end, when you look back, you will see things in perspective. You will understand things in perspective. How can I illustrate this? We're, we're, at, the, we're at the end of the year. 2010 is, is right around the corner. Imagine this. Imagine January the 1st of 2010. You had a terrible day. You woke up to go to work and the car had a flat tire. You fix a tire, but you get in a car accident. It's your fault on the way to work. You get to work and your boss tells you that you're fired. You might as well go home. 
You get home and your children are sick and your wife is sick and you get bad news from, from parents and, and just everything that can possibly happen goes bad. It's like that book, uh, what's that book? Uh, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I don't know if you ever read that book. But it's a day like that. Everything goes wrong. You go to bed that night and you think to yourself, God, this has been the worst day of my life. But then, January the 2nd, you wake up and your boss calls you and says, oh, it was a big mistake. Come on in. You, you got your job back. In fact, you're getting twice your pay. January the 3rd, a friend of yours wins $10 million. They decide to give you half. January the 4th, you win a vacation three months in the Caribbean for you and all of your family. January the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, the 8th, you're healthier than you've ever been. Your family is happier than they've ever been. Everything in your life is perfect. It is the greatest year of your entire life. At the end of the year, if someone comes to you and says, how was your year? Are you going to look back to January the 1st and say, awful? No, because the pain of January the 1st will have been replaced with the joy of the 2nd and the 3rd and the other 364 days of the year. And you see, that's the perspective of heaven. When we get to heaven, the joy and the glory of heaven will be such that as we look back, the worst possible experiences of earth are going to be forgotten. I heard one person once say this. This was a guy who had spent 30 years in prison for his faith. He said this, In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth, a life full of the most atrocious tortures on the planet, will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. The promises of God are certain, they're complete, they're collective, they're constructive. But one last thing, the promises of God are conditional. For we know all things work together for good to everyone, to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. If you remove God from the equation, then all things are not good. If you remove God from the equation, all things are not collective or constructive or certain. Remove God from the equation and pain is just pain and tragedy is just tragedy and all things do not work together for good. There has to be a personal relationship with God for this promise to be certain, to be part of your life. So where are you at today? If you're here this morning, and you've ever been through a storm in your life, you've ever been through a tragedy in your life, you've been through a situation and you shook your fist at heaven and you said, God, where were you when I was hurting? God, where were you in the midst of my suffering? God wants to just through His Holy Spirit reach His hand down to each one of you and take your hand this morning and remind you that His promises are real. I started with the story of David and Sevilla Flood. Can I finish it? This little baby called Ana was given to the Ericsons. Both of the Ericsons passed away within eight months from malaria. There was another American missionary couple who took this little baby called Ana. They changed her name to Aggie. 
They moved back to the United States. They settled in North Dakota. Aggie grew up, led a happy life. She ended up getting married when she went off to Bible college to a man called Dewey Hurst. Together, Aggie and Dewey Hurst went and they planted a church in the Midwest. They were very successful. They had children. Eventually, Dewey Hurst became a, a seminary professor in a school in the Seattle area. And while they were living in Seattle, one day, Aggie received this newspaper article, and it was all in Swedish. But she didn't know how to read Swedish, so she took the newspaper article to someone else, and it basically said that many years ago, in Zaire, which was then called the Belgian Congo, there was this woman called Sevilla Flood, and that she had died, but before she died, she had led this young boy to Christ. That young boy had gone back to the chief of the village, and he had said, can I start a school for children? And the chief had led him. That boy started a school, and within a few years, every student in that school had become a Christian. And through their influence, the entire village had come to Christ, even the chief. And when Aggie read that article, she was just shocked by that. And suddenly she began to realize, even through the death of her mother, God had a bigger plan. A few years later, someone gave her tickets to go back to Sweden. And so she looked up her father, David Flood. He was now a drunk. He had remarried. He had had other children. There was one rule in their household. Never mention God to me. Aggie showed up and after finding and getting to know some of her other sisters and brothers, she went in to see her father. And her father didn't know who she was. She said, Daddy, I've come home. Daddy, I want you to know that God used mom's death for good. A whole village has come to Christ because of mommy's death. And David Flood was able to hear the truth. He ended up becoming a Christian himself. Three days later, he died. And those would be good stories in and of themselves. But a few years after that, Aggie and Dewey Hurst went to a conference on international missions. And there at that conference, a man spoke. He was the superintendent of the denomination of Zaire. 200,000 believers. One of the greatest people movements of the 20th century. And Aggie went up afterwards and introduced himself to this man and said, said you, you'd never heard the name Sevilla Flood before. And the man said, yes, yes, I know the name. Who are you? And she said, well, I'm, I'm her daughter. And the man fell to his knees and said, I was a young African boy. I was a boy who came with the chickens and the eggs. I was the one who started this school. I was the one who saw the village come to Christ. And as a result of that village coming to Christ, there are now hundreds of villages. 200,000 people have come to know Jesus and been baptized because of the sacrifice of your mother. She had a chance of going and visiting that country. Thousands of Christians came. They took her by the hand. They led her to her mother's graveside. The pastor read the Bible where it says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and die, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's the promise. 
That's the promise. That all things work together for good. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. You may not see it right now. You may be tasting the ingredients separately. You may not understand it now. But I believe that this morning God wants to touch your hand. God wants to take those five fingers and hold your hand tightly. And if you will simply trust, and if you will simply believe, God can use anything in your life for good. He can redeem it if you give it to Him. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, truly Your promises are yes and amen. And Father, even as we think of this passage today, Father, we remember that there is nothing outside of Your control, that You are the sovereign God of eternity, that You are the almighty Creator of heaven and earth, and there is nothing that is too difficult for You. And Father God, I know that in this room today, there are people that have gone through experiences in their life that were not good, hurtful, painful experiences in their life. Things that have been done to them. Things that they themselves have done. Father, I pray that you would touch every hurting heart. That there is any area in any life here this morning where a person has said, God, why did you allow this to happen? God, where were you in the midst of my suffering? You would just whisper in their ear, I was with you all the time. And all things do work together. In light of eternity, all these things will be, will simply fade away. So Father, we pray that through your Spirit, you would minister now to every heart, to every hurt, Restore, Father God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.